Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Why was I stung by bees? Why was I stung by bees? Her three-year-old mind requires the why. She is not at peace with her vast unknowing, and she only momentarily satisfied when for the 107th time I explain, you were stung by bees because they were on the swing set at exactly the same time as you. This young girl who was ruminating on her first summertime hornet sting is from Reverend Victoria Safford's essay, Stung by Bees. Reverend Safford wrote this essay while serving the White Bear Unitarian Universalist Church in Minnesota. She continues, it's her first time being stung and she has taken it very personally. Were they mean bees? I say no. Are bees bad? I tell her no. Are they supposed to sting us? I say, mm, not exactly. Well then, why was I stung by bees? Reverend Safford admits that there is no way to tell her, look, it just happened. You and the hornets got there together, okay? It was just an accident. Sometimes, most of the time, things just happen. I invite you to reflect with me on how we deal with life's unexpected bee stings. The author Sheryl Sandberg identifies this sort of personalization as one of three ways that we stumble when dealing with adversity. She wrote a book earlier this year based on her own experience after her husband passed away unexpectedly while they were traveling two years ago. The book is titled Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. In it, she explains we all encounter hardships. Some we see coming, others take us by surprise. It can be as tragic as the sudden death of a child, as heartbreaking as, as, heartbreaking as a relationship that unravels, or as disappointing as a dream that goes unfulfilled. The question is, when these things happen, what do we do next? She goes on, we plant the seeds of resilience in the ways we process negative events. After spending decades studying how people deal with setbacks, psychologist Martin Seligman found that three beliefs can stunt recovery. The first is personalization, the belief that we are at fault, like the bee-stung three-year-old. The second is pervasiveness, the belief that an event will affect all areas of our life. And finally, the third is permanence, the belief that the aftershocks of the event will last forever. The loop in our head repeats, it's my fault this is awful, my whole life is awful, and it's always going to be awful. Hundreds of studies have shown that children and adults recover more quickly when they realize that hardships aren't entirely their fault, don't affect every aspect of their lives, and won't follow them everywhere forever. Recognizing that negative events aren't personal, pervasive, or permanent makes people less likely to get depressed and better able to cope. Even though this book is found in the general category of self-help books, we can view this as a deeply spiritual journey that Sheryl Sandberg shares with us. 
all sorts of spiritual practices find their way into her life, including some that are very traditional, some less so, but still familiar to us. In one particularly stressful moment, she instinctively sings a traditional ritual song of mourning to recenter herself and her daughter, and indeed everyone else present. She and her, she and her children start gratitude lists to help combat against the belief of pervasiveness. They also start saying mealtime prayers. She breathes deeply and slowly to get through moments of anxiety. Her story includes some more everyday spiritual practices that have come to us through the social sciences. She learns mindfulness as a way to be become aware when personalization and permanence are sneaking into her mind through her choice of words. She learns to stop apologizing for her grief and actively stop saying, I'm sorry, as that is really just a form of blaming herself. She also banishes the words always and never from her vocabulary because they are usually a sign of the belief of permanence. In a chapter on self-confidence, she explains how journaling can be a powerful tool for learning self-compassion. She suggests a very specific form of journaling where you write down three things that went well that day and why. She explains her own journaling experience by saying, that little notebook by my bed served an important purpose. It made me realize that for my entire life, I'd gone to bed thinking about what I'd done wrong that day, how I'd messed up, what wasn't working. Just the act of reminding myself of anything that had gone well was a welcome shift. These sorts of small shifts in perspective are at the heart of her suggestions on how to build resilience by creating enough space for our natural recovery mechanisms to take hold. She observes, if we had evolved to handle suffering, the deep grief would not kill me. I thought about humans had faced love and loss for centuries, and I felt connected to something much larger than myself, connected to universal human experience. One morning during the summer of 2013, I clicked on an article that a friend had shared on Facebook. I clicked because I was intrigued by a hand-drawn diagram of concentric circles, and I was also curious about the title, How Not to Say the Wrong Thing. The teasing subtitle said, it works in all kinds of crises, medical, legal, even existential. It's the ring theory of griping and grumbling. The first rule is, Comfort in, dump out. Now, I don't always remember reading articles on Facebook, much less four years later, but this one landed on my feed at just the right time. A few weeks earlier, my husband, Rich, had had a very bad car accident. He wasn't my husband yet. We would get engaged a year later. And he would recover from his injuries, but at the time I read the article, he was still in the hospital where he spent a good portion of that summer. The article was first published in the LA Times by psychologists Susan Silk and Barry Goldman. In it, they describe a very simple model for providing support to those in our lives experiencing a setback or trauma. You start by drawing a circle. In it, you put the name of the person at the center of the current trauma. That summer, Rich's name was in that center circle. You then draw a circle around the first one. In that ring, you put the name of the person next closest to the trauma. In Rich's case, this would, have, would be his sister and his mother. Once he was released from the hospital, his injuries prevented him from climbing stairs at his own place, 
so he stayed at his sister's for a few months. His mother lives next door and was in the role of primary caregiver most days. You continue drawing additional circles as many times as needed. In each larger ring, you put the next closest people. After his sister and mother, the next ring included his high school-aged nieces, me, and his closest friends. Here are the rules for these rings of people. The person in the center ring can say anything he wants to anyone, anywhere. Everyone else can say whatever they want too, but only to people in larger rings. When you're talking to a person in a ring smaller than yours, someone closer to the center of the crisis, the goal is to help. Listening is often more helpful than talking. If you do need to speak, ask yourself if what you're about to say is likely to provide comfort and support. If it isn't, don't say it. Don't, for example, give advice. People who are suffering from trauma don't need advice. They need comfort and support. So say, I'm sorry, or this must be really hard for you, or can I bring you a breakfast casserole? Don't say, you should hear what happened to me, or here's what I would do if I were you, and don't say, this is really bringing me down. There are many times that summer that I was scared, worried about Rich's progress, and concerned about his long-term prognosis. This model allows all those feelings and reactions and accepts them as normal. But it wisely suggests that if I wanted to talk about them, I do so with someone in an outer ring. That summer, those, that summer, those outer rings included my coworkers, my family, and some of you here during coffee hour. Comfort in, dump out. The comfort and support I received made it easier for me to offer support to Rich's sister and mother. It was easier to make those breakfast casseroles or offer to drive him to Boston for his follow-up appointments. Those rings of support brought a new meaning to the respect for the interconnected web of life. We each did our part and formed a very resilient network of support that helped Rich get back on his feet. I'm going to leave you this morning with some words from Brene Brown. If you have never heard of her, she is a research professor at the University of Houston. She gained visibility thanks to her 2010 TED Talk, which is among the top five TED Talks with over 31 million views. In it, she talks about people who feel loved and have a sense of belonging. In it, she talks about what people who feel loved and have a sense of belonging have in common. It's not what you might expect. If you have never seen it, I invite you to find 20 minutes this week to watch it. If you've already seen that one, I have a second invitation for you. In 2013, she was on Oprah's Super Soul series, speaking about the anatomy of trust. She looks at the elements of trust and helps us go beyond feelings of hurt, sadness, or disappointment, and start engaging in conversation to rebuild trust. Our covenant of right relations asks us to stay in relationship through conflict. The language she provides us for discussing trust is essential to make this happen. These two speeches of hers are both very powerful and worth watching. But I'm gonna share with you some, some of her words from a more recent video. Before I do, I, I wanna just mention briefly that so far we've been talking about resilience as a positive thing, the ability to bounce back in the face of adversity. 
But after writing the sermon, I realized, like many things, it has a shadow side. Too much resilience can make you complacent about getting out of bad situations. Too much resilience can overpower your, inst your instincts of self-preservation. You never bounce back because you never leave. You never leave the bad job, the dead-end relationship, or other toxic environment. For now, let's go back to Brene Brown. On August 15th, she had a 30-minute Facebook Live video during which she addressed the violence in Charlottesville and the ongoing conversation on white supremacy in our country. Near the end, she answered two questions from viewers. The first was, what should we do when we feel overwhelmed and paralyzed? How do we fuel up? The second was, what are some next steps? I thought her answers might be helpful to us as we consider resilience. We need everyday moments in our lives. We need joy. We need gratitude. We need love. We need belonging. Those things fortify us for this fight. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, take a break. And not from the conversation. Once you understand what's going on in the world, it's not like our break is going back to pretending it's not happening, it, but it's taking care of ourselves. We're fighting for civil rights, we're fighting for equality, we're fighting for justice, but we're also fighting so that people have access to the most meaningful experiences in life, love, belonging, joy, and purpose. And if we don't have those in our own hearts, we can't fight for other people to have them. People get uncomfortable with anger. My job is not to make other people comfortable. Your job is not to make people comfortable. But my job is to take care of myself so I can stay engaged in hard conversations. So you need to practice self-care. You need to be angry when you're angry, but also know that anger as an emotion is a great catalyst, but it's a terrible lifetime companion. Great catalyst. Be angry, but turn it into something else, because just to live with anger serves no one. It, it is a catalyst emotion. You have to do something with it. Otherwise, it turns into bitterness, resentment, and illness. Real illness. It's going to take two million individual acts of courage to start changing this. We just need critical mass. Luckily, there are millions and millions of us doing it. No one person's going to flip this thing. It is how you show up every day. This is a movement. We are the movement. And this is how we show up in our lives every day, the smallest moments. It's raising consciousness and doing it through questions and curiosity and love. And then speaking out when you see something go wrong. And if you approach speaking out with anger and self-righteousness, you will not move people. You have to reach out with love and curiosity but you also have to speak truth to BS. But be civil when you do it. It's every day. It's just take it and weave it through your life. And it's who we become and what we do every day. My spiritual companions, as we continue on the journey, may we remember that most of the time, things just happen. Small shifts can create space. Comfort in dump out. Keep love, belonging, joy, and purpose in our hearts. Amen, and blessed be.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.